most fintechs were started because a founder or someone had a bad experience at a financial institution or they had a challenge with some type of experience and they've made it their journey to figure out a better way to do that. You're listening to Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay, a podcast that empowers financial brand marketing, sales, and leadership teams to maximize their digital growth potential by generating 10 times more loans and deposits. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insight series, where James Robert interviews the industry's top marketing, sales, and fintech leaders, sharing practical wisdom to exponentially elevate you and your team. Let's get into the show. Greetings and hello. I am James Robert Lay, and welcome to the 88th episode of the Banking on Digital Growth podcast. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insight series, and I'm excited to welcome Christopher Danvers to the show. Christopher is a senior product manager at Q2, where he's bringing 15 years of experience working with various financial brands focused around payments, and he is responsible for the life cycle of card and payment experiences that help define the future of payment ecosystems for fintechs and other banking-as-a-service clients. You know, payments is such a hot topic right now and one that I see it's going to continue to grow. Just the other day, I saw Brett King post on LinkedIn, and he's been a guest of the show. He posted, if, and this is quote, if as a bank, you are still issuing plastic cards in 2025 and you don't have the hooks into a mainstream mobile wallet, expect major disruption from super apps, mobile wallets, etc." Brett continues, Doing as you have always done just won't do. There will be a need for plastic cards in 2025, but the integration with an investment in mobile wallets and mobile payments will be crucial to avoid disruption. I look forward to talking through this opportunity and more today with you, Chris. Welcome, Christopher. Welcome to the show. Thanks, James. It's a pleasure to be here. And you know, this this idea of payments, we're going to go there in, in opportunities and the work that you're doing right now over at Q2. But I want to start with what's going well for you right now. What are you just most excited about, whether that be personally or professionally? Um, you know, I am, I'm personally excited about all of us getting back to some kind of state of normalcy, probably not where we were in 2019, you know, but as, as we're all progressing with getting vaccinated, I hope that we can all find a way to get back to, to some kind of normal where we can all be in a room together. We can go back to conferences, you know, we can have cheap table wine and domestic beer over, you know, hot bland hors d'oeuvres, you know, and network again, uh, <laughs> you know, James, I know that you've done a great job of transitioning, you know, in this space to, you know, your, your digital podcast series, you know, versus being out there in the speaker, you know, circuit. And I know that's been a change for you, but, you know, I'm looking forward to some of that stuff again, putting on a, a suit and tie again for a legitimate business purpose. You know, I probably didn't enjoy that too much in the past, but I'm actually relishing the opportunity to do that. Man, I am right there with you. And Cheap table house wine and, and and domestic beers. Let me ask you, what are you going to be drinking when we're back at that cocktail? What are you What are you going to be drinking then? Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, I'm a I'm an Asahi super dry and hot sake kind of guy myself. But really, we'll see. 
Oh yeah! Wow, wow. So, so we can sit here and go down a rabbit hole of Japanese whiskeys. That's that's kind of my my forte. Whiskey scotch is my forte, and I've gotten into some of the Japanese whiskey. Very, very good stuff. But we're not we're not going to go there today. I want to come back to just you know you've spent a lot of time in payments. You've led digital strategy for financial brands. Before we talk about where you're at right now, I want to go back and how you got to this point, and more specifically. What have been some of the biggest lessons that you've learned along the way through the lens of payments, through the lens of digital strategy? Because don't they go hand in hand together? They've become one in the same, right? You know, if you think about payments, payments today are, are technically a digital exchange of value. And if we think about what the pandemic has done from the payment experiences, that we, yes. you know, have have migrated to, you know, less about going to a physical store, but if you are in a physical store, you've got retailers. I think probably for the first time, all saying, "Hey, we want to accept a contactless payment versus cash." Right. Right. You know, if you do go to a tour restaurant, you know, I had some experiences when I was recently in Atlanta where the waiter came to the table with his his machine, printed out the receipt, had a QR code on the bottom. You scan the QR code. And because you're doing this from your mobile device, you can actually pay for your check using Apple Pay. So pay with the Apple, pay with Apple Pay button integrated into the, the operating system, you know, website that, that the point of sale system took you to. So, you know, an in-person dining experience, but I had a completely contactless payment experience without giving someone a physical card. So I felt more secure. You know, being a payments guy, I know that that transaction was tokenized. So, you know, if their system got compromised, I'm good too. So these are all new payment experiences that, you know, I think are um, that are going to be the permanent type of changes that we're going to see after the pandemic, after we return to some kind of normal, after we can socialize again, you know, and do all the things that we miss with the people that we appreciate and love. Yeah, and and, and get that uh, cheap table wine and those domestic domestic <laughs> beers because you're right. It's it's their new habits. They're it's becoming more comfortable. I mean, I even think at the gas station now, I'm seeing tap to pay being implemented and rolled out a lot more frequently. Which you know, you know as a consumer, I I prefer. Is it a matter of behavior and adoption? What's driving all of this? Is it the consumer? Is it the is it the technology? Is it the retailer? Or is it a mix of all three? Kind of just you know, COVID has been the forcing function to bring all of this to bear at a, at a single moment. I think it's a bit of all three, right? I mean, restaurants have had to adapt pretty quickly. If you think about the restaurants that have stuck around, they're probably the restaurants that have either he- already had a healthy to-go business, you know, either through their own websites or apps or through strong partnerships with Uber Eats and other food ordering services that are out there. Because when you've gone past some of these restaurants, there's no one dining for the obvious for obvious reasons, you know, but they're staying open and the kitchens are busy, right? So I think retailers and restaurants, for that matter, having to adapt and figuring out, well, how do I still provide a, a commerce experience? you know, that's that's focused on the health and safety of my employees and my customers. I think those types of things are driving some of these uh, changes we're seeing. Obviously, when you think about the shift of in-purchase or in-person purchasing to online purchasing or mobile purchasing, whether it's our addiction to Amazon or whether it's, you know, ordering groceries for pickup or delivery, you know, or, you know, ordering food through, for, through any ordering app that's out there. 
that's a shift, a sizable shift, I think, of transaction volume that's moved from in-person using a physical card to using a digital credential, whether it's mm-hmm. a card that you've stored on file on an app, you know, and that's being done out of, you know, the customer's interest, right? You know, the right. customer is driving that volume of change. And then because of that, then I think you're seeing new payment services, you know, get a breath of, of life, you know, like buy now, pay later, you know, so yeah. if you've got consumers that are already a adopting a different type of online spend than they've done in the past. This is giving life to, you know, uh, buy now, pay later services where they can offer the ability for you to pay, you know, for that larger purchase and installment purchases. I think what's also behind a little bit of that is the fact that because of the pandemic, as consumers, we've overwhelmingly preferred to use debit cards over credit cards. And I think for a couple of reasons, we're flush with cash because of stimmies, but also the type of purchasing that you could do in the pandemic was more what you would do as a consumer with a debit card. It was your everyday purchases, you know, the larger luxury purchases or the international travel purchases or, or those types of things that you'd primarily pull a credit card out for. You couldn't really do those for a period of time, right? You know, there, was, there wasn't that drive or need for that type of, of transaction. So I think all of these things are being driven by, you know, to, to your original question, a combination of businesses, consumers, you know, and other folks that, that, that play a role in, in influencing how we spend and how we exchange value. You know, this idea of shifting consumer behavior, the adoption of, of just new methodologies, I even think of like what Shopify has done for the small business and empowering small businesses to come online, restaurants, and to even watch my wife interact with, you know, websites that are powered by Shopify and that payment experience is, is, is much more simplified than even ever before. One of the things that, you know, I'm thinking about as you're talking through this, the next level up blockchain, you know, Bitcoin, crypto. How is all of this going? Because you, you, you talked about, you know, buy now, pay later as kind of the, a, a new trend that's popping up. But what about blockchain, crypto, Bitcoin? I mean, Bitcoin's at, 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 at 58,223 as of recording today. Man, I wish I jumped on that bandwagon about we, 10 years ago. I mean, you, you wish you jumped on the uh, uh, Bitcoin. I wish I jumped on the Zoom bandwagon, <laughs> Salesforce. I mean, it's like you, know, just, you look back in a year and you're like, oh, my gosh. Wow, wow. Why didn't I see this coming? You're not, you're not <laughs> kidding. But, but if you look and you kind of read between the tea leaves and you look at all of this, is it hype or is there something that's really going on? And how is, how is this going to then impact the payment space? Because we are seeing fintech empowering financial brands to adopt crypto as a payment method. Yeah, the, the, the life cycle of crypto is interesting, right? You know, yeah. it started off with a bunch of nerds that created <laughs> this ability to, you know, create tokens, and it took a, a lot of computer processing power, and people were mining it, and then it's kind of evolved into where it is today, where it's, if not already mainstream, it's almost there, right? I mean, you've got well-known wallets out there, PayPal, for example, that you can very easily set up a PayPal account, get a debit card, and and start purchasing you know, cryptocurrency. And I think PayPal actually recently announced that they'll start allowing their customers to use crypto as a form of payment for online merchants where PayPal checkouts accepted. So that's, you know, so think about that at, at a real time checkout event, PayPal is going to allow you to take a 
you know, cryptocurrency value and exchange it into fiat currency. So you can check out, you know, with the same type of checkout experience that you have if you're using a credit card or a debit card. I think that's an early indicator that you're going to see um, crypto becoming a more common currency that you can use at point of sale. In fact, I think it was a week or two ago that Visa announced that they recently set up their network and officially, you know, processed the first crypto transaction ever, you know, over the Visa net, the, the Visa payments network. So you're seeing the payments infrastructure in the world kind of prepare for the acceptance of cryptocurrency in some form or fashion, which I think, you know, all points to this is going to be a currency option that's part of our wallet. Well, then, then you add in the complexity, and this is where you start to go down a rabbit hole, but I think it's one, as we're talking about payments, it's important to at least maybe just think about, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I could be way off base on this, but Joe Polizzi, who is going to be coming on the podcast, uh, was the founder of the Content Marketing Institute. He wrote a great article about why he's bullish on creator coins. And, you know, it's 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 a great branding for personal brands. We're seeing Terry Crews launching his own currency for his fan base. I think Snoop Dogg has now come out with the same type of thinking. But how does all of this, like the creator coin and crypto play together? Because now we're entering in a whole new place to where is it possible for me to have, you know, the currency of of the Digital Growth Institute for that matter? I mean, maybe <laughs> your guess is as good as mine. There, I think what's I think what's a little bit more interesting is NFTs, non fungible tokens. Yeah, um, where you've got people that have taken the blockchain and taken cryptocurrencies like the Ethereum, you know, uh, blockchain, you know, and 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 coin that exists on that blockchain, and they're, now they've created an ability to add an additional layer of value on top of the cryptocurrency that's already there, you know, and, you know, that non-fungible token, something that's unique that only ever exists once. I think what's really interesting in this space, if you think about Square's recent acquisition of Tidal, mm -hmm. you know, Square already plays, you know, heavy in, in, in the Bitcoin space. So yes. what if Square's plan is to allow Tidal music to be issued as NFTs? So, you know, Robert, you could purchase a once-only track by, you know, the singer of uh, that you adore the most or a limited edition, you know, track that is only ever available this many times. You know, what if what if NFTs was the was the way that that value was exchanged or well, that music is created? I mean, it's a, it's a whole new value proposition, value proposition on top of blockchain and cryptocurrency. And it's, that's the interesting stuff that I think is really going to that's going to take off in 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 can maybe niche markets first, you yep. know, but it'll find its footing. And if you if you think about, you know, what Apple did to the music industry, where you didn't have to buy the $25 CD anymore, you could just buy one track for 99 cents that revolutionized how we consume music. NFTs might do the same thing. That's well, and that's exactly what Joe Polizzi was talking about, about the creator coin and the way that he writes is he says a creator coin is a cryptocurrency that helps creators run their own virtual economies. Just like the U S has had the dollar in France as the Euro, a podcaster or a YouTuber or Twitch or a TikTok star can have their own currency. And, and as I saw this morning, money, 2020.com, 
has released an episode that specifically talks about NFTs. And they said that we had too much fun with this episode and turned this into a podcast and turned the original artwork into an NFT you can bid on <laughs> all for charity. So it's almost like exactly what you're talking about in real time. Check this out. Hop over to money2020.com. And I think this will give a better perspective into where payments, it's really, a, it's, a, it's a rabbit hole, if you will, of, of payments can possibly go. So You've moved over to Q2, Senior Product Manager for Cards and Payments. Q2 is based out of Austin. What are you focused on right now, and what problems are you starting to solve moving into this space? And and I think you bring a lot of empathy coming from the traditional financial world, spending a lot of time at, at, at different financial brands. So what are you seeing right now? What are you working on? What do you focus on? What problems are you solving? It's the, you know, the 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 transition to banking as a service has been really interesting and super exciting. You know, I have thoroughly enjoyed you know the past few months you know in this space already. Uh, you know, it's it's if I was going to describe it to someone who isn't in this space today, it would be the perfect intersection between traditional financial services and fintechs and innovation, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got fintech partners that are moving forward. They want to do innovative things. They want to do digital issuance at account opening. You know, they want to do, you know, the types of payment things that we know we can do as an industry. The capabilities are there. These are the folks that are bringing them to the table and to market first, you know, and it's, and then where the intersection is, is on the other side, you've got our bank partners that you know are the regulated institutions you know that still need to be satisfied you know from a due diligence perspective and all those types of things so you're in this middle you're in this in this middle space where you're satisfying future forward innovation and how do we make that work within the realms of traditional financial services so yes you know the the experience i think that i've had in the past you know allows me to sit well in the middle there understand what's possible you know what we can do but then work closely with our partners and our internal partners to figure out, well, how can we do that while satisfying a whole you know, different suite of stakeholders? Technology has transformed our world and digital has changed the way consumers shop for and buy financial services forever. Now consumers make purchase decisions long before they walk into a branch, if they walk into a branch at all. But your financial brand still wants to grow loans and deposits. We get it. Digital growth can feel confusing, frustrating, and overwhelming for any financial brand marketing and sales leader. But it doesn't have to because James Robert wrote the book that guides you every step of the way along your digital growth journey. Visit www.digitalgrowth.com to get a preview of his best-selling book, Banking on Digital Growth, or order a copy right now for you and your team from Amazon. Inside, you'll find a strategic marketing manifesto that was written to transform financial brands, and it is packed full of practical and proven insights you can start using today to confidently generate 10 times more loans and deposits. Now back to the show. And how do you bridge that gap? Because they're all coming at this from a little bit of a different perspective. They have, and I, and I think what drives a lot of that is just their worldview, their experience, because experience shapes reality. How are you helping to bridge all of these different worlds, you know, moving into a level of convergence? 
Yeah, so it's not just me. You know, I'm surrounded with a great team of people, a great team of very capable, very knowledgeable people at Q2, you know, on the banking as a service team. So, you know, it's been refreshing to come into an environment where everyone seems to know exactly what they need to do. They know how to do it. And the team works really well together to get it done on behalf of who the stakeholders are, you know, that that we're serving at that time. I think fintechs are similarly to the space that I came from, credit unions, they're solving similar consumer problems. Credit unions are all about people helping people. Well, most fintechs were started because a founder or someone had a bad experience at a financial institution or they had a challenge with some type of experience and they've made it their journey to figure out a better way to do that, whether that's overdraft, whether that's investing, you know, whether that's managing your funds, you know, when your finances, whatever, whatever that calling was, you know, so it's, they're just doing it from a technology first perspective. They're not saddled with some of the uh, legacy systems and legacy challenges that, that financial institutions, you know, have that are just innately part of being around for 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years, right? Right. You know, they're able to start with a clean technology stack, Yes. you know, and and then build versus bolt onto right. legacy systems. And I think that makes them significant difference in in their ability to get in there and and problem solve and come up with creative new ways to solve for the same consumer challenges that traditional financial institutions are also faced as well. What are some of those problems? What what are some of the opportunities that you're seeing that you're hearing about with the conversations that you're having from I, I think you, you said it best, they're 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 starting from scratch. They don't have the history and the the legacy that weighs them down, for lack of a better word. What are some of the opportunities that, that you're seeing right now and you're hearing about? I mean, in the payment space specifically, it's all about the real-time exchange of value. Yeah. And, and when you onboard a customer into a fintech app or a fintech experience, how can you get a payment card or a payment mechanism you know, to that consumer in real time? So it's all about instant digital issuance of cards. I think fintechs are cued in innately to the experience of receiving something. So, you know, most companies will out there will still issue a physical piece of card, a piece of plastic, because you still need that card to, to conduct transactions at, at most places. But, you know, the, the thought that goes into how a card looks the materials that the card is made up of, you know, the packaging and the experience that you as the customer receive when you receive that in the mail, that's very different than what you get from traditional financial institutions, you know, where you've got a card that is in a discrete envelope because they don't want someone to be stealing that card from your mailbox before you get it, right? I mean, so it's, yes. a, it's looking at the same experience or same opportunity, just with a very different lens and trying to solve for that same problem, you know, approaching it from a different perspective. It is packaging. It's experience. Uh, I, I think of uh, the conversation I had with uh, Ben Shoppet, uh, who's the CEO over at Unify Money, and they're tying the the card, you know, being made from recycled plastics because it fits into their larger purpose of environmental friendly and packaging and how it's all delivered. We've been doing some secret shopping around Chime, and Chime is communicating constantly with people who have opened up a Chime account. You know, this is where your debit card is. It just shipped out. It's almost like e-com. So people have an expectation of when it should arrive. And if they haven't taken any action to activate it, Chime is 
following up? You know, is there anything that we can do to help? What's what might be holding you back? So it's a it's a multi-channel experience uh, that's tied back to I think what you you best framed it. It's an exchange of of value when it all boils down to it. What are some of the roadblocks that you know could hold financial brands back, maybe even fintech back when it comes to the the, the payment space? What are some of the biggest roadblocks that that we just need to be aware of and thinking about? I think first and foremost, you've got to make sure you've got the right partners. Yeah. So, uh, you know, whether you're a legacy financial institution, whether you're a fintech, it's that combination of partners that you work with, you know, that helps you realize and achieve, you know, what you're ultimately trying to do. You know, so you've got to make sure that you're, you've got the right partners working with you, you know, and there's a strategic understanding of what you're doing and why. Secondly, I think you need to make sure that you're making the right investments, whether that's stuff, whether that's technology capabilities, internal capabilities, whatever that is to actually achieve what you want to do. I don't think you want to be the Rio Olympics, right? Where, you know, you've got this plan to pull off the Olympics, that's $2 billion, but you're only willing to invest 435 million. I think those are the two numbers that I had heard when the Rio Olympics were were happening, right? You right. Know, I don't think you want to be the Rio Olympics of, of, of financial services, right? You know, so you've, I think you've got to, you've got to make sure that you're really willing to invest in the capabilities that are needed to pull off, you know, your vision, if, if that's what you're, if you're really serious about doing that. Expectations. I think that's like, that's something that I'm hearing and seeing a lot more with the conversations that I'm having is we have an expectation for, let's just call it X and it's really, really big and grandiose, but we're only bringing Y to the table and there's a gap between X and Y, how do you bridge even, let's just say the expectation gap of getting the right capability, the right partners, making the right investments so that X can become a reality because Y happens and we're not all that thrilled and excited and unmet expectations or unrealized expectations lead to frustration and some painful conversations that happen internally. How do you reconcile that with an organization? I think it takes a lot of alignment. I think it takes a lot of honest and open dialogue. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, part of our earlier conversation before the, the mic was on, it's probably easy to figure out what to do, but understanding the how, when the rubber hits the road, being honest about that, I think is what's a successful part of, of, of making that work. You know, if you're if you pull together a plan and get it approved to do X, but you don't have the people on board about Y and Z, you're never going to get to X, right? It's never, it's never going to come to fruition. Or if it, or if it does, it's going to be challenging. It's going to be difficult. So, what I've seen, what I've seen in this space is, is you know, open and honest conversations about what it would actually take to achieve this. You know, mm-hmm. a good structure that allows alignment around priorities. And making trade-offs and commitments, you know, to make sure that we can we can deliver what we're promising, you know, we're going to deliver. Open and honest conversations. I want to just pause and, and reinforce that because we were having this discussion in a in one of the digital growth book clubs a few weeks ago that a member was wishing that they I wish we could have the conversations that we're having in this book club with the larger part of our organizations because they were very real. They were very raw. And I said, well, what's what's holding you back from making that a reality? Just having this conversation. And they said, there's a lot of fear, like like to, to, to admit that we might not know something or that we might not have the answer. 
And I was like, well, that's a, you know, if, if, if you think that you're going to have the answer to everything, then we're already behind. That's why, to back to your point, getting sure that you have the right partners. And you've led a lot of digital strategy, a lot of payment strategy over the years. How have you helped encourage others to move forward, or we'll just call it on their own journey of growth, knowing that change is hard, change is scary, change is painful? What could you advise the dear listener who is connecting with what you're saying? They see some of the opportunities that you're, you're seeing, but they know that they need to transform hearts and minds internally. Where could they begin these open, honest conversations and discussions with others? I think you can start with encouraging the dialogue, encouraging the conversations, bringing the new ideas and opportunities to the table, mm-hmm. You know, putting them in front of the right people, the influences in your organization, the leaders in your organization, depending on where you sit, you, know, you may be in a position to influence the outcome of that. You might be in a position where you're having to hand it to a leader or someone in your organization that you trust, and then you're letting them go forth and push that forward as, as far as it can go. But I think... I think the lesson or the key part that I would, that the, the advice that I would give is, is do all of that, but you've got to listen for whether or not the appetite is really there. Because if, if, if you're in an environment where you're bringing all these great ideas to the table and, you know, there's not the traction behind it, then you need to be honest with yourself and figure out, okay, am I adding as much value here right now as I could be? Am I comfortable with the value that, they're asking me to bring. And there's got to be an alignment with what you personally and professionally are trying to do with what the organization that you are serving, you know, is professionally trying to do in the marketplace as well. Man, that is like that right there. That's so powerful because you talk about having open and honest conversations with the team, with the organization, but to have open and honest conversations with a team and an organization, you have to have open and honest conversations first and foremost with yourself. And I've seen, and, and really over the last six months, getting a lot of questions from leaders for different parts of the organization who are really having almost an existential crisis. Like, why am I here? Why, why am I doing what I'm doing? Like, these are really good things. And I think it's a great, a great segue because it's something that I asked you about before. Something I found on your website, ChristopherDanvers.com, which if you're listening, I highly recommend you go check out some of Christopher's thinking, ChristopherDanvers.com. One of the things that, that's noted is something called the Holstein Manifesto. And it's very intriguing. I've never heard of the Holstein Manifesto. Can you give the dear listener what this is and why it's important? And why why is this on your website here to begin with in the first place? Because it's a very powerful perspective. Yeah, so about a decade ago, I was visiting some friends of mine out in San Francisco, and they had this Holstein Manifesto in one of their rooms. You know, And I, I remember sitting in the room and just and looking at it and reading it over and over again. And the manifesto itself, there were a number of things in this manifesto that, you know, struck a chord with me personally. And ever since then, I've had two copies of it. I've had one in my house and I've had one, you know, where I work professionally as a reminder that you've got a limited opportunity to do what's valuable for you in the world, Yes. you know, and it's very easy, whether it's because of fear, whether it's because of inertia, whether it's because you're comfortable, you know, to easily forget about what you want to do versus figuring out how to manage through a circumstance that you're in. And when I've had times of difficulty or challenges, you know, throughout my life, 
at least over the past decade, this particular manifesto has helped me personally. And I can actually read it out if you want. Would that be helpful? Please do, because I think this would give a lot of context. And, and it might just be the thing that someone is listening to this conversation today. This could be the most important thing they hear out of everything that we've talked about. Yeah. And on the backdrop of 2020 and working through the pandemic, you know, we've all faced personal challenges. Something like this can become a really, I think, powerful tool to provide some of that perspective that each of us might be struggling a little bit with, you know, as far as are we where we want to be. And if not, how do you figure out where you want to be? Right. But here's the manifesto. It starts off with this is your life. Do what you love and do it often. If you don't like something, change it. If you don't like your job, quit. If you don't have enough time, stop watching TV. If you are looking for the love of your life, stop. They will be waiting for you when you start doing the things you love. Stop overanalyzing. Life is simple. All emotions are beautiful. When you eat, appreciate every last bite. Open your mind, arms, and heart to new things and people. We are united in our differences. Ask the next person you see what their passion is and share your inspiring dream with them. Travel often. Getting lost will help you find yourself. Some opportunities only come once. Seize them. Life is about the people you meet and the things you create with them. So go out and start creating. Life is short. Live your dream and share your passion. Man, Christopher, thank you. That's, that's some powerful stuff right there. And, you know, I think it's one that save this episode. Come back and just listen to this. Get the whole scene manifesto. Print it out look at it like Christopher does because it it's life is very short and my philosophy is give more than you take continuously just pour yourself out to others to continuously elevate them and as a result the secret is by elevating them you're also going to elevate yourself as well on that note and this has been such a good conversation and and i've learned a lot today and i appreciate the expertise christopher as we start to wrap things up what is a practical step an action something small for the dear listener to consider committing to when it comes to maximizing just their future payments potential either at their financial brand or at their fintech what's one small practical commitment that they can make to continue to move forward down this journey with confidence yeah i think one of the easiest things you can do is identify a problem whether it's a problem that your customers you know are talking to you about whether it's a problem internally with a business process or how something is or isn't functioning properly start with identifying a problem. And if you're passionate about that problem or that problem means something to you, then you can work through your organization and your partners to figure out, well, how can I solve for that problem? And when you do those things together in that order, you know, I think that helps you live a role within an organization that's fulfilling, you know, but the key is you've got to be passionate about the problem that you're solving. That's the key part. Start by looking for identifying problems and then create solutions, cures to those pain points, to those problems versus what we see a lot of times is people try to create the cure, the solution first, and then go find the problem where that might fit. So it's a small switch in thinking, but can have very powerful implications over the course of someone's not just organizational life, but just their own personal life as well. Someone's listening right now, Christopher, 
they want to continue this conversation and discussion with you. They want to dive deeper into the Holstein Manifesto. <laughs> What's the best way for them to find you, to reach out? I've already mentioned your website, ChristopherDanvers.com, but what's the best way for them to reach out and say hello, connect with you? Twitter. My handle is King of Payments or directly on LinkedIn, Christopher Danvers. Send me a note. More than happy to exchange ideas, information, and help people think through whatever these challenges are. We're all in this together in some form or fashion, right? Yes. Open your mind, arms, and heart to new things and people. Because as you noted with the whole same manifesto, we are all united. Definitely are. Christopher, once again, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining me on another episode of Banking on Digital Growth. James, thank you for having me here. It's been great. As always, and until next time, be well, do good, and make your bed. Thank you for listening to another episode of Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay. Like what you hear? Tell a friend about the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify and subscribe while you're there. To get even more practical and proven insights, visit www.digitalgrowth.com to grab a preview of James Robert's best-selling book, Banking on Digital Growth, or order a copy right now for you and your team from Amazon. Inside you'll find a strategic marketing and sales blueprint framed around 12 key areas of focus that empower you to confidently generate 10 times more loans and deposits. Until next time, be well and do good.